Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when he rose and have come to worship him. When Herod heard the, the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in, Judea, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so was written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country, by another way. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, good morning again. It's good to be back here with you after being gone for a week. Um, I, I don't take it lightly that, that this church allows Angela and me to speak at marriage conferences a handful of times a year, so I'm deeply thankful for you and the elders that you let us do it, and I'm thankful for Andy, who very capably filled the pulpit last week. And so this Sunday is our last Sunday in Advent, and we come to a very well-known story, the story of the Magi, or as we've come to know the story in American culture, the story of the three wise men. Now, I think it's interesting how you can have different people observing the same series of events unfolding in front of them, and these different people can interpret the same series of events in very different ways. So when Angela and I lived in Italy, we had a really good friend, this very old lady who lived next door to us. Her name was Amelia. And most days of the year, she would come over and ask us, how many of you are eating? And most days of the year, she would cook the main meal of the day for my whole family. And so we got to know her very well. I had the honor about a year and a half ago of helping to officiate her funeral. And she would tell us stories when we would eat with her. Uh, about what it was lo- like to grow up as a little girl during World War II. And most people don't realize this, but Normandy was not the first place that American troops landed on continental Europe. Salerno was where we lived, the Bay of Salerno. And she would tell the story of going to bed one night, clear bay, waking up the next morning to nothing but warships covered warships as far as she could see in every direction and so there were some German soldiers in town and they're scrambling as fast as they could they had some cannons they were trying to move into the hills and place them strategically because they knew that the arrival of these warships was bad news for them this was not a good thing and Amelia remembers very clearly her mother looking to her and saying we're rescued 
So they were seeing the same set of events, but interpreting them in very different ways. Her mom was actually so excited that the American warships were there. She gathered up all her 11 children and she ran down to the beach to get as close as she could to the warships, which was a really bad idea because they immediately started bombing the beach and she was able to safely get them all back inside. But she deeply believed that the arrival of these warships was good news to the Italians and the Nazis deeply believed that the arrival of these warships was bad news to them. Same set of events, interpreting them in very different ways and that's exactly what we have going on in our text this morning. We have the same set of events transpiring in the birth of Jesus Christ and we have three different people or groups of people interpreting those events in very different ways. So this morning, I just want to look at these three people or groups of people and the different ways that they interpreted the birth of Jesus Christ with the hope that we're all going to consider how we interpret the same set of events that we read about today in the birth of Jesus Christ. So we have three different people or groups of people. We have Herod, we have the priests and scribes, and then finally, we have, of course, the wise men. So we're going to take those three groups. We'll start with Herod. Who was Herod? He was basically a politician with an army. He was a bad guy whose dad had done some favors for Rome. And in return, Rome had given Herod and and his descendants the right to rule Judea as long as they submitted to Caesar. This Herod that we're reading about was especially brutal. He actually gave himself the title King of the Jews. He called himself the King of the Jews And he was a tyrant who was absolutely brutal to the people that he ruled over. And at the same time, in a really weird way, longed for this people to love him. So he was basically the Michael Scott of tyrants. He would execute anyone who got in his way, anyone who threatened his power, including at least, we know officially, of one high priest, one of his wives, and three of his sons that he would execute because he felt threatened by them. He actually gave orders that upon his death, most of the high officials in Jerusalem should be executed because he wanted to ensure that when he died, people would mourn and not praise. This is probably why Matthew recorded that when when the news of the birth of Jesus came, that all Israel was troubled because they didn't know what this was going to mean for them because of how Herod was going to interpret these events. So here we are, the wise men, they arrived from the east They announced that the real king of Israel has been born. And this so threatens Herod that it eventually drives him to order the execution of every baby boy in Bethlehem to and under. So in that day, we're probably talking about 20 or 30 babies, maybe. So what in the world would have driven somebody to make an order like this? to execute 20 or 30 babies. What so threatened Herod in the birth of Jesus that it would drive him to that extreme? And the answer is control. The birth of Jesus, it threatened Herod's control. Herod controlled his world. He submitted to nobody outside of this distant Caesar who he submitted to because it was the the source of his control. But at the end of the day, Herod ruled Herod's world and the birth of Jesus meant that one day he might have to give over that control to somebody else and he would do anything to prevent that from happening, including murdering children. But what we 2,000 years later 
need to realize is that the birth of Jesus isn't only threatening Herod's sense of control, but ours too. And I know people might be thinking, that feels like a big jump, Jim. (laughs) You're comparing me to this serial baby killer. But Herod did not start as a serial baby killer. Herod valued control over his life. He gained more and more control. The more control he had, the more he wanted to maintain that control. And I think you could say that the, the more control he had, the more fragile it felt, the more anxious he felt, and the more paranoid he became. So we see this, he didn't start out a baby killer. He progressed over the course of his desire to maintain control over his life, a control that Jesus came and challenged. So in our life, how is it that Jesus challenges our desire to be in control? You know, when Jesus comes, he isn't claiming just to be king of the Jews. Jesus is coming and claiming to be king over you over all of us. When we celebrate the Christmas story, we're not just celebrating this story of the birth of Jesus. We are celebrating the God-man breaking into this world, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, coming in and claiming authority over every inch of this universe and every aspect of our lives. And so we need to wrestle with the story and ask ourselves, how does this feel? How does it feel that there is this king claiming rule and authority over every aspect of our lives? It didn't sit well with Herod. And Herod resisted the control of Jesus Christ for the rest of his life, which ended up actually only being two more years. Which is ironic if you think about it. This epic struggle that Herod had over control of his life, it ended with what? Death. The ultimate declaration that we have no control over our lives. And it's not unusual for people who struggle with control to also struggle with anxiety. And if you struggle with anxiety here, I want to make two caveats before I say anything about it. First, I'm not trying to compare you to Herod right now. Second of all, I don't want to minimize the complexity of a lifelong or even significant season of struggling with anxiety. But I do want to communicate that for anybody who struggles with anxiety, there is some very good news here when it comes to giving control over our lives to Jesus Christ. Because when we give control of our lives to Jesus Christ, we're in essence acknowledging we don't control the events of our lives. And we're handing them over to somebody who claims to control every detail of our life. All the things that we care about, all the the most important things that we can't control, Jesus is claiming he does control them if we'll release control to him. And so the question I'm often asked is, great, Jim, I, I hear you. I understand it, but how do I appropriate that? Like, how do I take that knowledge that Jesus is in control and how does that practically help my anxiety? And so my answer to that is that anxiety is is fundamentally a forward-thinking curse. Okay, does that make sense? So depression, on the other hand, would would be mulling over what used to be or what could have been, where anxiety is mulling over what will be. And so if we struggle with anxiety and we recognize that Jesus is in control of our life, then we get to do two things that we couldn't do before. First, we get to ponder what is true now. What is true now about Jesus having control of our life? It's true that we don't control anything and it's true that he controls everything. 
And that should bring a measure of help to our anxiety. But secondly, if we are forward thinking by wiring, then let us focus that forward thinking on what we know to be true about our future. We know that this Jesus is going to come back He is going to establish his rule and his reign in every corner of this universe. And he will establish a world free from anxiety where we get to exist eternally with him. So if we have to forward think, let's forward think to that spot. Giving control of our lives. Not giving control of our lives will create anxiety. Giving control of our lives to Jesus Christ cures anxiety. Not fully in this life. I don't want to give that, but... It is the cure and the path to being able to live in the midst of these anxieties. So that's Herod. Herod trying to hold on to the illusion of control in his life. And then we have the priests and the scribes. <laughs> so who were these priests and scribes? The, the wise men come in and they tell Herod, the real king of the Jews has been born. And Herod, obviously very interested, <laughs> says, priests and scribes, what is he talking about? Who is this real king of the Jews? Where, where is it that he's been born? And the priests and scribes say, well, he's been born in Bethlehem. And I imagine Herod saying, well, how do you know that? And he says, well, it's in, our, it's in our sacred text. The prophet Micah says, out of Bethlehem shall come a shepherd and ruler of Israel. And then do you know what the priests and scribes did? After proclaiming that this ruler and shepherd has been born in Bethlehem? Nothing. They did nothing. I mean, to me, this is as odd as having the publisher's clearinghouse people at your door and deciding you're just going to keep watching the bowl game. (laughs) And if you don't know what publisher's clearinghouse is, it's like, imagine winning the lottery, but they come to you and and they bring a big check and all you have to do is answer the door. But really, I just want to keep watching the bowl game. So how is it that the priests and scribes got to this point where they would, they would acknowledge with their mouths some of the deepest truths of the prophecies of scriptures being fulfilled in their day, but it didn't affect their actions in the least bit. I think life had gotten pretty good for them. You know, they wanted enough Yahweh to to be socially acceptable. They wanted enough Yahweh to be financially cozy, but they didn't want to have so much Yahweh that it would cause difficulties in their life or discomfort in their life. They had a good thing going on with Herod. You know, they they didn't want this Yahweh coming in and, and turning that over. They wanted a God that would serve them. They, they wanted a God that would make their lives comfortable. And if this God threatened that, then they would just push it out of their minds in some way. These priests and scribes, they had knowledge in their head, but they have no grace in their heart. And these are exactly the kind of people that Jesus, 13 chapters later, is addressing when he quotes the prophet Isaiah and says, These people, this people, honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. So how horrible is it that the chosen vessels of God to usher in his grace into our world, they honor him with their lips, but they're not willing to take one step with their feet. These wise men had traveled how many weeks and they won't even go to investigate. Does that sound familiar at all? They had knowledge in their heads. They would agree to this knowledge, but it doesn't change any part of the way that they live, really. According to Barna Research Group, in the United States right now, 
Nine out of 10 Americans believe Jesus was a real person. Seven out of 10 call themselves Christians. Six out of 10 say that Jesus is God. So already we have a group of people saying, I'm Christian, but Jesus isn't God. Six out of 10 people have made some kind of commitment to Jesus, yet only three out of 10 Americans will participate in some sort of religious event. So that's church, Bible study, community group. Three out of 10 will do that more than one time in a month. So what does that mean? It means that according to these statistics that we're left with four out of 10 Americans who will say, yes, I believe Jesus is God. I wanna be called as a Christian, but just as long as it doesn't interrupt my evenings during the week or my Sunday morning. Does that sound familiar? Because that's exactly what the priests and the scribes are doing in our passage. They're saying Jesus is God, but it changes nothing about who they are. But I would say that this epidemic in the United States of America is actually shifting significantly. Over the past uh, few election seasons, especially, Christians have come to mourn what's come to be called the loss of a Christian America. Things are changing rapidly. And, and I want to be really clear that I think it's a great thing. I long for this country to honor God and to be faithful to God. I want my children and my grandchildren to grow up in a country where they're safe, where they have the opportunity to provide for their families, to live quiet, godly lives as Paul prays for the church. But I think that the shift that we're seeing right now, it isn't necessarily a bunch of Christians moving into the non-Christian realm. I think the lines are just becoming a little more clear because we have a lot of people who are saying, I'm gonna follow Jesus as long as it benefits me socially. I'm gonna follow Jesus as long as it benefits my business. But now that our culture increasingly is such that it doesn't benefit us, we have people switching to the side that they more naturally have fit in for the past 50 to 70 years. So I'm not all that certain that our country is becoming less Christian. I think the lines are becoming more clear. And I think that this is a good thing both for Christians and non-Christians. So Angela and I, as I said earlier, y'all let us go and speak at these marriage conferences every now and then. And we were about a year ago over in San Diego. So we're not talking about the Bible Belt here. (laughs) And in San Diego, you have a much lower percentage of people who would identify as Christians. But among those Christians, a much larger percentage of them would live out the Christian life. And so it was really interesting to us to go and interact with Christians in San Diego because it felt different. I mean, we were very quickly talking about Jesus, very quickly hearing from people we don't even know about how Jesus saved them, about how Jesus is changing them. And on the other end of the spectrum, we're interacting with people who aren't Christians And I don't think we could talk to them for more than five minutes before getting somewhere spiritual because the chasm between us in terms of our values and our convictions is so wide that it can't help but come up. So all of a sudden we feel this deeper fellowship and camaraderie camaraderie with Christians when the lines are clear and we're more able to quickly get into fruitful conversations with non-Christians simply because the lines are clear. This is what I think is happening in our country today. So the question we need to ask is how do we process this? As Christians, watching the culture change, watching our environment change, trying to train our children and our grandchildren to understand how it is we process these things. So I have two suggestions. First, 
we need to believe deeply that God's in control. We don't know what things are going to look like in 50 years. We don't know what things are going to look like in 100 years. We don't know that Jesus won't come back this year. So we can't have a position of fear, a posture of fear. Do you know that in the 10th century, Christianity almost ceased to exist? Okay, lots of people don't realize this, but in the 10th century, you had Islam who had conquered the Mideast, Northern Africa, all of Spain, and a third of France, all right? That's the south kind of, the southern rim. And then in the east, Christianity had pretty much been wiped from Asia. And then in the north, you had the Vikings coming down out of the north and they had burned half of the churches and um, monasteries in northern Europe. So there were people, their concern wasn't how does Christianity continue to flourish? Their concern is how do we protect the Bible from disappearing altogether? So people were beginning to devote their lives to protecting and hiding the Bible because they had this sense that Christianity will cease to exist within their lifetime. That's 10th century. Fast forward 11 centuries and where are we now? Christianity is exploding at unprecedented rates. Now, admittedly, most of that is in the East and in the South, so it doesn't affect us as much. But the people in the 10th century could have never imagined what would be going on in the 21st. So we can't be fearful. We have to know that God is in charge as we process the shifts in our culture. So that's like at a 30,000 foot level, but at a very low altitude. We need to make sure we're not like the priests and the scribes. You know, I mean, we read Paul writing in Romans 10 with the deepest sense of mourning that God has cut off Israel cut them out completely because they honored him with their lips, but they did not love him with their hearts. And so if God is going to do that with a cultural Israelite, why would he ever hesitate with a cultural American Christian? Are we the scribes and the Pharisees? Do we just honor God with our lips or do we have a deep, a deep sense of grace in our hearts? All right, so we've seen two very depressing responses to the birth of Jesus. Let's finish with a really encouraging response to the birth of Jesus, the wise men. So do you know how much we know about the wise men? Almost nothing. We, we don't know where they came from. We don't know who they were. We don't know how many there were. We, I mean, we've come up with this number three because there were three gifts, but there could have been two. There could have been 20. We don't know. We don't know how they knew about Jesus. We don't know what the star was. We don't know when exactly they arrived. There's a whole lot we don't know about the wise men. Now, I can give you my conjecture. (laughs) It seems like they probably arrived from Babylon or Persia. So think Iran and Iraq today. It seems like they were probably the educated elite of their society. How did they know about Jesus? It seems like the Israelites in captivity at some point were able to communicate these prophecies to the educated elite over there. Uh, It could have been Daniel himself. We don't know. That's my theory. Uh, It seems like they arrived somewhere between six and 12 months after the birth of Jesus. Because again, the, the text says that Mary and Joseph had moved into a house. The text says that that Herod had decreed that all boys two and under. So that gives you the idea there had been some time that passed. All the boys two and under would be killed. 
So probably we're talking months, if not years, after the birth of Christ, which does mean most of our, of our nativity scenes are incorrect that have the three wise men right there. But that's okay. It's not the only part of our nativity that's incorrect. I was ex- explaining to one of my children this week that, that our lily-white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed baby Jesus is probably not a fair representation of what he looked like. Just so you can know. So what about the star? You know, all kinds of people have made astronomical guesses about comets and planets and other things that might have happened. Personally, I lean away from the natural towards the supernatural because the way this, whatever it was, it, it moved and it settled over an area in a way that they knew this was the designated target. So for me, it sounds a lot like the same kind of light that the Israelites followed out of captivity into the promised land. I think it might have been the Shekinah glory of God leading them to the birth of Christ. And I also think there's a good chance the wise men knew Numbers 24, verse 17, that says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. And here it is. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So those are my guesses. We won't know until we're all in heaven. (laughs) But I do know that Matthew doesn't seem really concerned with a lot of these details. If Matthew thought these were really important details, he would have filled them all in. What is important to Matthew are two things. He wants us to see that the wise men had faith and that God used them. I think that's what Matthew wants us to see. So we're going to finish by just looking at these two things, that the wise men had faith and that God used them. So first, the wise men had faith. And there are four pieces of their faith that I want us to see. First, they had a faith that sought. All right? I mean, you don't travel for weeks on horse and foot to go find something that's not very, very valuable to you. They were seeking the Lord Jesus Christ. They were seeking him potentially at risk to themselves. I mean, there's a lot out west I would like to see, but I'm not walking there to go see it. It's not that important to me but they had a faith that sought. And I can only imagine how surprised they might be when they arrive in Jerusalem after having traveled by horseback, probably horse, not camel, traveling for weeks and realizing that nobody in Israel even cared or knew about what was going on. But the wise men, they had a faith that sought. Secondly, they had a faith that cost. They brought Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So we all know what gold is. Frankincense is an incense that would have been used in temple worship to anoint a priest. And then myrrh was, was what they used to embalm dead bodies. It probably took about 100 pounds of myrrh to be able to embalm one dead body. It was very expensive. It, the trade for this was, was in high demand. And so even by the most conservative estimates of, of what they what these wise men brought in gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It would have been very costly, very expensive, what it was that they were presenting Jesus and his family. I think they knew that. What I don't think they knew is how prophetic their gifts would be. Because in presenting gold, frankincense, and myrrh, they were presenting Jesus the metal of kings, the incense of priests, and the myrrh of a prophet who would die. So they had a faith that sought They had a faith that cost. And my favorite, they had a faith that had wonder. 
The text says they arrived in Bethlehem, they found the child, and they rejoiced in joy and wonder. Wonder. I've got one child who will just sit in front of a nativity scene. Just, Just pull up a chair and sit there and just stare. And there's this sense of wonder, you know, what was it like? Where were they? Who all was there? What they, were they doing? And he just stares and stares and stares at this nativity scene with this awe and this wonder. And if I'm most convicted about one aspect of the faith of the wise men, it's this sense of wonder. Because in our life, in the stress of our work, the stress of our lives, the stress of our home, all the, the things, the bills that we need to pay the goals that we need to hit. It's easy for all of that to erode our sense of wonder and really for Christianity at the end of the day be nothing more than a a religious set of checklists that we need to accomplish. But wonder, that's, that's a whole different kind of faith. It looks very different when we don't approach Christianity as a checklist, but with awe and wonder. And I think that there is a cultural piece to this that, that affects us. You know, in the United States of America, every, every anthropologist, every sociologist would agree we live in the most radically individualized culture that has ever existed. Now, I, don't, I don't know of anybody who disagrees with that. So we have to, as Christians, think, well, how might that radical individualization that we all are a part of affect the way that we view our faith? And I think there's lots of ways, but specifically, there's one that I think affects our sense of wonder when we come to the nativity scene. And it's this. If I ask Christians in America, what is the gospel hope? All right, come up in your mind. How would you answer that? What is the gospel hope? I think the majority of the people I talk to, and I would have fallen into this camp at one point too, the majority of people would say forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness of sin, that, that's the Christian hope. Okay, so that's, that's certainly a part of the Christian hope. That's a hugely important part of the Christian hope. But forgiveness of sin is like the ticket that gets you in. I mean, imagine if, if you, somebody gave you tickets to Disney and you were more excited about the tickets than the Disney experience. All right, forgiveness of sin is like the ticket that gets us into the Christian hope. And can you see how, if we're radically individualized, we would reduce the Christian hope to what is it, what does it give me? On an individual basis, what do I get out of this? And the answer, if we process it that way, is forgiveness of sin. And it shouldn't surprise us that when we reduce the hope of the gospel simply to my individual forgiveness of sin, that the sense of wonder is reduced as well. So no wonder, there's no wonder. But the Christian hope is so much bigger than that. The Christian hope is that forgiveness of sin is gonna give us entry into a whole new kingdom and that this kingdom is ruled by King Jesus and that he is tangibly bringing his kingdom here. And that when he's bringing his kingdom here, not by giving a bunch of external laws that we need to abide by, but he comes by entering into our hearts and changing our hearts and making us real pieces of his kingdom coming here. This is why we're supposed to pray, thy kingdom come, thy thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are a part of Jesus's kingdom coming here, a kingdom that has no end in which we will flourish and live eternally if we believe in him. So can you see how much bigger that is than forgiveness of my sin? We can't lose the wonder of our faith, the wonder that the wise men had, the wonder my son has. 
And then lastly, the wise men had a faith that worshipped. Can you imagine worshipping a toddler? I mean, a toddler makes me want to do a lot of things, but worshipping is not one of them. But there was something different about Jesus. You know, I think there are probably four or five future American presidents alive today. Can you imagine if we knew who they were? I mean, we would be obsessed with, with them, following them, watching them, but none of us would want to worship them. Something was different about the baby Jesus. Something was so different that it caused these men to go and lay aside everything else that was important in their lives for the one thing that was most important. And when we isolate the one thing that's most important, most important in our lives, that's the thing that we worship. And for them, it was the born king, baby Jesus. And we have to see that if, if our faith doesn't seek, it doesn't cost, and it doesn't wonder, then it's never gonna truly worship. So the wise men had faith. And then secondly, and much more brief, they were used by God. Now, every scholar points out when you read the commentaries on this passage that probably the wise men did not realize that the gifts they were giving him, the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh, that it was going to actually save baby Jesus, that it was going to fund their flight from Herod into Egypt. So God is using them right off the bat, but he doesn't just use them to save Jesus, although that would surely be enough. (laughs) He's used them for 2,000 years as Christians look back and learn from them as examples of the Christian faith. If we want to be used by God, we need to have the kind of faith that the wise men had. I have a friend that... um, that I can't name because of the part of the world that we're talking about. But he's a very trusted source. And he was telling me the story about this American, this American Christian businessman. And most of his business is in the Middle East in a very closed country, in a very dangerous country if, if you were going to be an open Christian. And this businessman was in this country and he brought his wife this time and they were gassing up at a gas station. And he noticed this Arab man just sitting on a bench. And... And he looked at him, he gassed up, they were driving away and his wife could see that something was bothering her husband and and she asked him what's going on. He said, this is gonna sound crazy. I just have this deep sense that I was supposed to share the gospel with that man on the bench. But I know how dangerous that is. I know that that could cost me my whole business. It could cost me my life. Even worse, it it could risk your life if I were to do that. True story. This wife looks at her husband and said, well, I'd rather be the widow of a martyr than the wife of a coward. So he turned right around. <laughs> he went to that man on the bench and said, yeah, I've noticed you've been sitting on this bench for a while. I'm, I'm an American. He spoke Arabic. He said, I'm, I'm an American. I'm a Christian. I just want to know if there's anything that I can do for you. And he said, I had a dream last night that I was to come to this bench and that God would send me a messenger. That man got to see him being used in incredible ways in that moment as he went on to tell this person about the hope of Jesus Christ. And he did that because he and his wife, they had the kind of faith that sought, that cost, and that wondered. And they were used. But God didn't use the story of the wise men only to show us an example 
of faith. God uses the story of the wise men to show us an example of his faithfulness to us. And to see this, we have to go all the way back to Genesis 17. This is where we're going to finish. In Genesis 17, God had begun to make a nation through himself, through Abram. He's changing Abram's name to Abraham. And God says this, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall, shall be Abraham. And here it is. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Okay? But all the way up until this passage in the Bible, there's only been one nation. One nation that God's concerned with, Israel. Yet the promise in Genesis was that it would be for all nations. But we don't see it happening until the wise men come. And we see pagans from the east coming and worshiping the incarnate God. So in the story of the wise men, we see the promise of all nations being fulfilled. We see the beginning, the inauguration of the Great Commission, that this gospel wouldn't be limited to one ethnicity, but would go to the world. And so when we look at the story of the wise men, we see a picture of God's faithfulness to pursue us, even from a promise that he made in the very beginning of time. So we have Herod, who resisted Jesus. We have the priests and the scribes who ignored Jesus. And we have the magi or the wise men who worshiped Jesus. And all of us, we need to consider where are we when we're presented with the truths of the incarnate God breaking into this universe in the form of a baby? How does that affect us? Do we resist it? Do we ignore it? Or do we worship? Because those are the three main options. So I want to finish just by praying for us that this story would move in all of our hearts by God's grace and the power of his spirit that we would all worship when we hear this story and that from our worship that we would continue to be lights in dark places and that that worship would begin to spread. Let's pray. God, I am so grateful for the Christmas season Uh, As my family grows larger, the season grows more stressful, and the need for me to to be reminded of the truths of the birth of Jesus Christ become more significant and profound. And I thank you that no matter where we are in the season, if we are lonely, if we're anxious, if we're depressed, that there is hope in this message. And I pray for all of us, wherever we are, that that hope would really would really take hold of our hearts, that you, by your grace, would give us a faith like the wise men, that you would use us. We don't want to be individuals in America who just receive. We want to be participants in your kingdom who move and are used. And I pray by your grace that that would be true of all of us at Orlando Grace Church. We thank you for this church. I thank you for these sweet friends. (laughs) that love you and love each other. And I pray that the bounds of our love for each other and people outside of this building would continue to be expanded supernaturally beyond anything that we ever thought we could do. We love you, Jesus, and we ask these things in your name. Amen.